Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Windham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Windham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's one of the toughest and most dangerous professions in the world, commercial fishing. And we talked to Corey Wheeler-Forest, a fisher mom, about her life at sea and her family, the last trap fishing operation in southern New England. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. It's said to be one of the toughest and most dangerous jobs on the planet, that of commercial fishing. And like so many professions, fewer people are becoming fishermen. Corey Wheeler-Forrest is a third-generation commercial fisherman and fish dealer, working out of Seconit Point in Rhode Island, and her family are the last trap fishing operation in southern New England. Corey has been documenting her life as a woman working in an historically male-dominated profession for years, and now that life has been captured in a limited-time exhibition at the Mystic Seaport Museum. I caught up with Corey on the day her exhibition was due to open for a chat and a look at the amazing photographs she's taken and continues to take of hers and her family's everyday lives. Corey, ever so many thanks for doing the interview with us. You have a brand new exhibit at Mystic Seaport Museum. Talk to us about it. About a year ago, Kevin O'Leary from the museum contacted me via Instagram. He found me on there and invited me out for coffee to discuss this possibility. And yeah, it took a, a year to actually happen, and I never thought that I would be seeing my pictures in a museum, so I guess I'm officially a museum relic. (laughs) Hardly, but what we'll say is let's just give the listeners a little taste of what it is that they can come to see because your exhibition will be available, I believe, all the way through the summer of 2023. It's called Through the Lens of a Commercial Fisher Mom. So tell us more. So most women who fish do... themselves and call themselves commercial fishermen but I liked the plan words because I am also a mom and it still sort of sounds like man (laughs) without saying commercial fisherwoman. The exhibit is sort of documenting your family's history and continued work as commercial fisher people, fishermen, fisher (laughs) moms, all those lovely words. Talk to us a little bit about some of the pictures because there's about 30 I believe photographs in this room that we're standing in at the Mystic Seaport Museum. There is also a documentary as well that people can come and see so we're not going to spoil everything and give everything away because people need to come down and and see it i'm looking at one of the photographs on the wall we'll go over and have a look at it and it's called my brother luke the water is a dark flower and a fisherman is a bee in the heart of her talk to us a little bit about the photograph he's standing there on one of the your vessels i'm, I'm yes. assuming in red day glow red safety gear so talk to us a little bit about it because it's a very evocative photograph it is I, I love how the uh, the oil gear contrasts with the, the fogginess and the, there's a lot of grays in the photograph. Luke, he is definitely a big part in our 
in our work. He runs his own boat, and when he can, he helps my father and I run our, our business too, but he's not always there every day. But when he is there, it's always sort of a blessing and a huge help because we're already shorthanded as it is. But he's, he's experienced. He's, you know went to Maine Maritime Academy. He's been fishing his whole life. And, you know, he, he makes it in a lot of my photographs. You know, him and my father is sort of being the staples and sort of why I do it is, you know, as a family and special. Talk to us about the history, obviously the family history of trap fishing. We're going to ask you specifically about the trap fishing aspect, but it's a very long family history. Your dad is still an active fisherman, and I believe you said he's 76 this year? He's 76 in June. So, yeah, so my grandfather started it. My grandfather used to, he was a trucker and shipped fish, and trapping back in the day was, I mean, it's been around for possibly 200 years, and in the 1800s there were 200 traps lying in the coastline. So he started in 1947. He had a partner, and they bought the dock that we own today and one of the trap companies. So, you know, we grew up doing it. And and back then, when they fished and when my dad fished, did this particular trapping, it was only six weeks of the year. So they would fish for the six weeks, and then they would go work on other other boats, or they had other boats. uh, They owned other boats, and he would lobster, gillnet the rest of the year. But growing up, it was just you know, it was part of our culture. I mean, it's just what they talked about. And Luke and my younger brother grew up doing it. And I was a bit of a later bloomer. I I didn't, I kind of had no interest in it. It was very sort of, you know, you walk the docks, there was never any women down there or anything. And it was a summer when I was in college and my dad said, you know, the guys that are mending nets right now are in their 70s and 80s and no one is behind them learning how to do this. Even my dad doesn't necessarily want to mend. He can mend a little bit, but so I started mending the nets and I just fell in love with it. I mean, you're out in this field at six in the morning, there's, you know, deer and butterflies. I mean, it was just beautiful, and I I was just so shocked that I had, you know, waited that long to do it. And then I think it was the following summer, I went down to the dock before heading to the field to mend, and they were shorthanded. My dad said, you got to come out with us or we can't go. So that was my introduction into the fishing thing, and I was 19 years old. I mean, I was, you know, versus my brothers doing it since they were six or, or whatever. And then I went out on the boat, and I just, I mean, I really couldn't believe that I had, you know, waited that long, and, and you know, I'd missed out on it so long. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And then it took me a little while longer to go back mend after being on the boat. <laughs> can we ask you, we won't ask you a specific age, but can we ask you how long you've been doing it? Like, I take... So, I, I mean, so 26, 27 years. So, and, you know, I went to college... I have a literature degree, and I, I thought I would, you know, be a teacher or something and do this during the summer. I just, I couldn't stay away. Anytime I sort of tried doing other things, it was like feeling homesick. I just, I just, it kept drawing me back. What do people say to you? Because, as you said, uh, there aren't a lot of women in the industry. So what's the sort of comments that you get? So... It's not necessarily a prominent theme that I deal with, but it is definitely a reoccurring theme. I think it's more, you know, if I meet someone new or whatever, it's more of disbelief that, you know, because I don't look the part <laughs> versus, you know, my brother, he, you know, he's got the beard and everything. I remember actually walking down the, in, going down to the Fulton Fish Market for the first time to meet some of my buyers in, in person, and we were going by some stalls, and there's these fish dealers automatically approaching my brother, 
And my brother's like, no, I'm not the person you're supposed to talk to. You talk to my sister. <laughs> she's, she's the boss. So, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, people, it's just more disbelief. They don't really take me seriously. Or, you know, even on the dock when I first started, these people would come down to the dock and buy fish from us and they'd be pinching my cheeks. Oh, you're so cute. Did you have fun? Like, <laughs> be like, yeah, this is actually like my job. This is what I do every day. Explain to us if you would, it's trap fishing. So for the uninitiated of us who, uh, you know, go out with a, a rod and a line. Um, what is what is trap fishing? So the official gear type we use, it's called a floating fish trap. And it's sort of like a giant aquarium. So if you can picture sort of, I think most people know what a lobster pot looks like, where it has these, they call the nozzles, the sort of like funnels the lobsters into a part of the trap that they can't escape. It's the same idea as that, but our nets are the size of a building. And there's two parts of it. The first part is called the leader net, and it's quarter mile long, and it's basically a wall of net. So the fish hit that, they think they've hit shallow water, and it turns them, and they swim offshore, and that leads them into the actual trap where they can't escape. And we have the mothership, called the mothership, the Maria Mendoza, which is 65-foot boat, and then we tow out three 30-foot aluminum work boats and a skiff. And when we get out there, we have we used to fish with about 12 to 15 people, and that's dwindled to about eight people because it's just hard finding help. At least two people go in every boat and we literally have to row out to our designated spots where we put our hands in the twine and we are pulling with our hands and as we're doing that the bottom of the net is rising and the fish are coming up to the surface and they're all alive. So anything that has a size restriction or regulation that we can't keep we can throw overboard and they swim away. People have seen some like TV shows about obviously the fishing industry. It is considered one of the most dangerous industries in the world actually which I think surprises a lot of people. But then when you see it, I mean, certainly some of the deep sea fishing, how far out do you go? Because I'm guessing it's not deep sea. It's it's not deep. We're actually right off the coast of Newport, Rhode Island. We can see the the famous mansions from where we are. Um, And then we also have some nets right off our breakwater off Sakonet Point. So though we're not going very far, it's still very dangerous in that we're, we're, um, you know, everything's under a lot of strain. You know, there's 900-pound anchors holding some of these, the, the frame in where the net goes in. So, you know, lines have snapped. My brother's gotten clotheslined a couple of times with the line snap and he's gone over. You know, transferring from boat to boat, I've gone, I've fallen between the boats and almost gotten crushed between the boats. You know, you just really have to always be aware of what's going on around you. And you depend on the crew to look out for dangers and, you know, essentially our lives are in each other's hands. Has it changed over the years? I mean, as we said, your dad is still doing it. Uh, he's not here right now, and I'm sure he would have plenty of towels. But, you know, as you've said, you've been doing it now since you were 19, so over 20-plus yeah. years. How has it changed? I think the, the biggest thing... So when I first started, I think, I was, you know, I was 19, and there's people on the boat that were, you know, in their 70s. And there was... The people on the boat, we had a really good crew who'd been doing it for their whole lives and now our crew has dwindled to about eight people and I guess I'm considered one of the old timers um we try to recruit some you know kids summer jobs and that sort of thing so there's you know some younger kids doing it um it's it's hard to find people I think that's sort of what we're up against in Little Compton it's far away from anything nobody actually lives down there like for me it's a 30 minute drive and it's one of my most favorite times of the day it's a beautiful drive but no one lives down there anymore so trying you know people trying to find transportation and and things like that I think that's probably one of the, the biggest things that have changed 
just the amount of people to do it. But, you know, I look back that, you know, when I first started, we had 15 people in our boat, and we're still catching the same amount of fish, but with half the number of people. So it just, you know, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily working harder. You work just as hard, but the job has to get done. You have to keep going until it's, all the fish are packed. <laughs> we do hear, of course, all these stories about, so like, quotas and all that type of thing, and you just said, you know, you are still catching the same amount of fish. But, you know, how has that affected sort of the industry, maybe not just yourself, but the industry overall, would you say? I mean, I think that having regulations are really important for the future of the fishery. I mean, it, it, it just has to has to be there. And having the regulations, you do see that the fish are around. So without them, I, I you know, there would be less fish. And, you know, there's something to be said for not being able to, you know, say we're only allowed to bring in 50 pounds of a certain fish and, you know, sea bass, for example. If we were allowed to bring in 500 pounds, the, the cost of the fish, they would be worth less too. So having regulation stuff actually brings the price up a fish a little bit more, even though we can catch less. Let's talk about a few more of these photographs. Let's take a quick walk across the building here because they're all beautifully put up on the walls. I've just been instantly drawn to a functional tattoo. It says, I can point to the areas where our traps are located. Just talk us through this photograph. So actually, this photograph was not originally supposed to be part of the exhibit. Um, Someone that I've been working closely with here, uh, Crystal Rose, this was her idea. She said, hey, um, can you take a picture of your tattoo? I'd love to put it up. And, and actually put the markings on it. <laughs> so that's how that's how this came, and I, I think uh, it came out really well. And it truly is a functional tattoo. You know, it, on the nautical chart, in an actual nautical chart, it'll it'll say fish trap area. So boaters and stuff hopefully go around. <laughs> around our fish traps, but often they they don't. (laughs) The collection of photographs is stunning. I take it you've taken all of these photographs and you've just nodded here, so we'll just let the listeners know that uh, Corey has nodded that there are all her photographs. Why did you then sort of decide to, you know, create, I know you said you didn't start to create an exhibition, but why did you decide to document this? I think, you know, from the very beginning, I've always noticed things and observed and, you know, my first day out, realizing how beautiful it was and the light and being up that early in the morning when everybody else is sleeping. And I've, I've just always noticed it. And, and then, you know, with like an iPhone, it allows you to always have a phone with you. And I think there, there's that saying, you know, the best camera is the one that you have with you. And, you know, part of it is documenting sort of a, a visual journal it's always good for me to go back and see what we were, you know, what we were catching, you know, this time last year or the year before, what the weather was like when we set our first anchors. So I've always documented that. And, and whether it was, you know, written word, I, I have to write down every single pound of fish we catch anyway, because I have to report it to the state. This is just, you know, sort of taken on a different level for me. And I enjoy it. I mean, fishing is really hard and it it very rarely runs smoothly. Like we very rarely have a day where something doesn't go wrong or breaks or anything like that. And I think for me to notice those moments and the poetry and the beauty of it, it keeps me going or else what's the point? If I, if I stop noticing it, I don't know if I'd be able to do it anymore. Looking at some of these absolutely stunning photographs, I'm looking at one here. It's a headline, Little Compton, Rhode Island. It's got a quote from Doug Morano, give me calloused hands and tender hearts. Who is that? It's a scene of Nets. It's Misty. And is that your brother in there? No, no, that's, um, that's uh, Bob Malone. And he actually fished with my grandfather. So I work with two guys out uh, mending nets. It's just the three of us who know how to do it. 
And he doesn't fish anymore, but he used to fish, and this is sort of his retirement. He looks at it. But, I mean, he's the best guy we have. He is probably one of the only living people that ever built a trap from start to finish, and the last trap they built was in the 1980s. And that's actually the trap that we're working on in that picture. I don't know if there's any original parts to it left. And, you know, the quote is, you know, I think fishermen have this, you know, there's this archetype that they're tough and all this stuff. And these guys really are tough. But, you know, when you talk to them, they're kind. And, you know, when we're out there working, they're telling me stories that I never knew about my grandfather. And, you know, it's really special. Yeah, not a lot of people get to get to do that, do they? I mean, Again, looking at these photographs, and there is just an amazing assortment of them, all different types, and and I'm guessing this is just a small collection of probably photographs that you have taken. Lots of quotes. I mean, you know, we just mentioned one quote in the the Misty photograph there. What gave you the inspiration for, for those quotes? I read a lot. I've always read. And I think, you know, I started sort of collecting quotes or passages or poems when I was in high school. And I think it was, I was probably, a, it was probably a form of procrastination when I should have been doing something else. But I've, you know, things have always stand out in me. And when I, you know, take these pictures and, and some of, you know, some of the captions are, are my own, but a lot of them, you know, I'm not just like randomly looking up a quote on the internet to go. I, I usually have something in mind already. I'm looking at one particular photograph which is actually used sort of to publicize the exhibition it is you in fishing gear and underneath the the quote there says influencer so a lot of you all been asking about my beauty routine dead fish jellyfish brown rain my skin is burning or hashtags talk to us about that one because you clean up well I mean you know today you're, you're not in your galoshes as it were <laughs> maybe I look the part in this photograph it might be my one and only selfie ever and I'm sort of making fun of myself in the picture a little bit and, and influences in general because no one's asking what their beauty routine is in reality. So that picture was taken on what we'll call gear day and we're taking, when we take the nets out of the water, they're filthy and they're, you know, there's jellyfish and there's, and the net is raised all the way up to the top of the mast above your head and it is hitting you in the face and there's you know, dead stuff falling on your head. And that was probably a 90 degree day and you have to wear gear. So there's steam coming out of my oil gear and my face is covered in mud and jellyfish and my skin is literally burning. I have to say, out of all of the photographs, I mean, it is one of the most evocative and sort of just really does, like, capture the whole thing. I mean, all of the photographs are are beautiful in their own right, but that photograph of you is just so, sort of, like, transcending. You look at it, and it's like, if I wasn't standing here speaking to you right now, you'd be thinking, what's that woman thinking about? What's going through her head right now? Why is she doing this? Why does she do that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's part of the job. I mean, there's, you know, the last couple of years, being shorthanded we don't even have we used to have a designated box maker like literally someone you know we buy the the boxes by the pallet and they're flat and we have an old staple machine that's always breaking I'm the one getting up at 3 30 in the morning to go down to the dock before we leave at 6 a.m to make the boxes and you know the gear work and stuff is just it's just part of the it's part of the job I mean there's so many little details that I don't think people realize how their fish end up on their plate and that's just you know it's just part of it it's it's not always glamorous. <laughs> 
I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, we all take this stuff for granted going into the supermarket or, you know, a fishmonger or something and picking up this. And we've got no idea, you know, how it actually got to us and the amount of effort and everything else that it takes, you know, for us to be able to have that privilege of, you know, having that fish or that piece of meat or, or whatever. What's your father think about this? Because as we've said throughout this interview, he is still fishing, which is incredible. What's he think about what it is that you're doing here? Because he's going to be coming to visit the exhibition, isn't he? I mean, I think he's excited. Honestly, you know, this time of year he moves to New Hampshire and he's been working every single day since Christmas, so he'll have a couple of days off, so I think he's excited about that. But I haven't really spoke to him too much about it. I think he's proud and all that good stuff, but we'll see what he says when I see him or his, his impression of it. He doesn't have social media or anything, so he has not seen most, you know, any of these pictures probably. So it'll be a, a big surprise for him, I think. That's going to be a really nice reaction then, isn't yeah, it? I think, I, I hope so. I think so. <laughs> or else he'll, you know, stay humble or, you know, <laughs> you, know. you know, fishing is, you know, it's this camaraderie, but it's, it's very much sort of a teasing culture too. You know, I don't, you know, because I'm the girl on the boat, I don't get less abuse than anybody else. So he'll probably tease me. <laughs> what do you hope people will get from this exhibition as well? Because there's a lot for them to learn. There's a lot for them to see. Like we said, there's these stunning, beautiful images of yours the photographs there's the documentary they're going to be able to speak to you as well initially as this event kicks off what are you hoping that they're going to get from this well I think it gives people um, a different perspective and also our fishery itself being so unique I, I think most people know what like lobstering is and the gear that goes into that and this particular fishery most people don't know that it even exists and having the documentary per- for people to view is really helpful because it gives the photo context without me having to label and explain exactly what's going on in every photograph too. I think that would be really difficult. So the combination of having the documentary where you can actually see us in action and there's even drone footage of, you know, the boat and the net from above and you can see how how big it is and how much work is involved. Um, You know, I think that's what I want people to see and appreciate, um, you know, the work that goes into it and that, you know, it's beautiful and it's special. A lot of candid moments, not just in the photographs, but I'm guessing in the documentary as well then. Yeah, there, yeah, there is. There is. I mean, you know, the documentary and us right now, there, there's no script. <laughs> so, it, you know, there's some things in the documentary like, oh, I should have worded that different or, you know, something like that. But, you know, it's, it's what I know. What does the future hold? Because like every industry uh, and as the world continues to evolve, things change. What do you think the future holds for your family and obviously for the trap fishing? I think, you know, we'll just keep going as long as we can. I mean, it, it's, you know, I know my dad wants to see that, in, you know, for, for his kids and possibly grandkids. I think that goes with the territory of fishing, not just our particular fishery. The future is really uncertain, whether it's, you know, a pandemic or falling fish prices, um, regulations. You know, I think that fishermen to the core always remain optimistic and hopeful. We keep going even when it's bad. You know, maybe it's because we don't know any better. But, you know, it's just, it's, we do it because we love it, not for the money. Corey, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Success, obviously, with the exhibition. And uh, thank you for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thank you for having me. And you can see Corey's amazing photographic exhibition and watch the documentary until summer by visiting the Mystic Seaport Museum. Details about the exhibit and ticket prices can be found at their website, mysticseaport.org. And if you want to see more of Corey's work and life, you can follow her at her Instagram account at fishandforest. That's F-I-S-H-A-N-D. 
F-O-R-R-E-S-T. Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at GreenValleyTreeWorks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. Hundreds of students at Connecticut College came recently to support the first rally by school faculty and staff as pressure continues to mount on the school's president, Catherine Bergeron, to resign over a cancelled school fundraiser which caused the resignation of the Dean of Equity and Inclusion almost a month ago, as well as other issues of alleged bullying behaviour by her towards faculty and staff members. Ashfan Jafar is faculty and professor of sociology at the college and had strong words for the president and her administration. Our labor exploited, being asked to do more with less, while the administration just does less. The board would have us believe our concerns are new and shocking, but we know better. We know what these nine years have been like, and so now we say, enough. Nine years is long enough. Virginia Anderson is an associate professor of theatre at the college and told the crowd what was happening now will be remembered. So listen up, friends. History has its eyes on you. And trustees, if you are watching, if you are listening, history has its eyes on you with what we have passively accepted. No more. No more. A college theatre production of the Sondheim musical Into the Woods was set for March 3rd through the 5th but was cancelled by student cast and crew at the 11th hour in support of the students' protests. Bergeron reacted to the news by sending an email urging the students to consider finding other ways to support their fellow students without cancelling the production. And on Wednesday morning, Bergeron sent out a school-wide email addressing several of the students' concerns but made no mention of whether she would be stepping down from her position. And in his first statement to the press since resigning from Connecticut College, Dr. Rodman King, the former Dean of Equity and Inclusion, said he was proud of the students, staff and faculty for demanding change and added he believed it is vital they sustain their activism through and beyond the spring break. King has recently taken up a new post as an Assistant Dean of Equity, Inclusion and Belonging at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. The president of Electric Boat, Kevin Graney, delivered his annual legislative update at a breakfast attended by local business leaders and legislators in Groton recently. His message about the company and the submarine business in general was optimistic and upbeat. Graney started his speech by saying that EB is hiring and in 2022 and employed an additional 3,900 new staff and they're looking for more. Approximately 25% of the new hires were engineers and designers. We hired 20% of the graduating class from the University of Connecticut as engineers to electric boat. 53% of our hires were in operations and the remaining 22% were in our support functions. We're going to continue to hire for the foreseeable future and in 2023, we hope to welcome an additional 5,000 employees to our team. So this is the highest rate of hiring in our history. 
Craney also thanked the state's federal delegation on their continued efforts to bring submarine work and money to the state, and the company will also be looking to spend over a billion dollars with local Connecticut suppliers and businesses across the state over five years as part of their local supply chain. U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal was also a key speaker at the event and underscored the importance of submarine building in the U.S. and the defense sector in general because of threats from countries like China and Russia. We face, as a nation, the biggest threat to our defense industrial base and the biggest challenge since World War II. We have to do more stuff in production. We have to make more artillery, ammunition, drones, tanks, armored vehicles than since World War II. Electric Boat has received significant financial investment from the federal government for submarines, which have become popular over the last several years due to the unstable state of geopolitics around the world. Young people aged 13 to 17 years of age in New London have been getting the chance to find out what it's like and what it takes to be a modern-day police officer. The New London Police Department is running a 10-week Youth Police Academy, which they believe is the first in the state. Brian Wright is the chief of New London Police and explained why they decided to invite this age group to be part of an academy experience. I thought it was important that we have that connection to our young people because many times they're unaware of the profession and we thought it was important that we could broaden their perspective and hopefully there might be some young officers in the group but more importantly to build that rapport, that relationship which is so necessary in this day and age. Wright says the initial youth academy has been so successful they have a waiting list of young people wishing to attend. Serenity Francis is 16 years old and Isaac Lopez is 14 years old and both are attending the first youth police academy. Honestly, I just wanted to see what it's like a day in a life as a police officer. And you've obviously seen like police officer point of views from civilians and I thought it would be a really good experience seeing police officers from their point of view. See like what cops do since I was a little kid so I just wanted to learn like how to become a cop and figure out stuff that you have to do in order to do that. The course is taught by current serving police officers and gives an unvarnished look at what it takes to be a police officer in today's society. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 